I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When a 19-year-old woman is found deceased from an apparent suicide, an investigation revealed the victim's involvement in a volatile love triangle. The evidence quickly gathered by police would point to not one, not two, but a trio of viable suspects with a motive to kill. This is the Devin Guzman story. Great to be back recording with you, Amy. Great to be in the summer months, enjoying our break from school, right? And are you getting excited for our Costa Rica trip? I know. (laughs) You're the one who's actively planning it and talking about it like it's definitely going to happen. I guess you're just going to will it to happen. So That's what I'm saying. I'm willing it to happen. Today's case is one that I have long been interested in, but I don't believe it received much media attention. So I think it might be one of those most listeners have not heard of. And I don't think you've heard of it either. Devin Narita Guzman was born in June 1981 to Melody and Ricardo Guzman, and although it's unclear exactly when, the pair separated at some point. But both appeared to have maintained very close relationships with Devin, and both were very supportive of their daughter when she came out as lesbian. Devin's mother, Melody Guzman, described her daughter as, quote, carefree and full of life. She worked hard. She loved family. She was a happy person. Since high school, Devin had been the object of affection for two classmates, Carrie Renner and Michelle Hetzel. 
both of whom seemingly fought over Devin's affection. And like many young relationships, things were on and off again, you know, between the two of them. I should say three of them, because Devin would be on with Carrie, off with Michelle, on with Michelle, off with Carrie. But Devin openly identified as a lesbian, while Michelle identified as heterosexual. And their relationship started as platonic, the relationship between Devin and Michelle, but it eventually evolved into a romantic and sexual relationship during their late adolescence. But the relationship was highly tumultuous, Amy, with unhealthy infatuation, frequent jealousy, deceit, infidelity, psychological abuse. I mean, it was truly the unhealthiest of relationships. And Devin would return to Carrie whenever Michelle inevitably distanced herself from Devin because Michelle identified again as heterosexual and then she would, you know, put space between her and Devin. And it seemed like Carrie was usually waiting by, hoping that Devin would eventually pick her over Michelle which is a very unhealthy dynamic, as you can imagine. And unfortunately, Devin and Carrie also had a very volatile relationship with a lot of instances of verbal and physical violence. So you have several different relationships here. All of them are unhealthy, so this is not a good foundation. As for Michelle, in her late teens, she did not have a very stable environment, spending a lot of time in foster care and eventually dropping out of high school. Now, I know that she spent a lot of time in foster care, but I also know that she still maintained relationships with both of her parents, even while she was in foster care. Devin's mother and Carrie both described Michelle as a pathological liar who had difficulty telling the difference between reality and her own self-concocted fantasies. And I think you might see that come to fruition at some point here. In the spring of 1999, 18-year-old Michelle began dating the son of her then foster mother. So this was 25-year-old Brandon Bloss. He was a young man who was described as a good student, having obtained degrees in both chemistry and math, a hard worker maintaining full-time employment alongside a part-time job. So he was going to school. He was working. I think people, you know, he was described as a good man. Brandon quickly became enamored with Michelle, though, and he wound up proposing marriage to her within a few short months of them dating. And Michelle accepted Brandon's proposal. But while dating Brandon, Michelle was also secretly maintaining her relationship with Devin. And for the following year, simultaneously, she would profess her love to Devin and then profess her love to Brandon. So she's playing both sides here. I'm assuming neither one knew about each other? Devin knew about Brandon. Michelle maintained that facade with Devin. You know, they would be together, but she'd be, you know, tell her, no, but I have to date men. You know, I'm dating men. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not who I really am. But Brandon had no idea at this time about Devin. No, he did not. He knew Devin and he knew they were good friends, but he did not know the nature of their romantic relationship. Now, with the wedding date approaching, though, here's what happened. Having gone back and forth between Devin and Brandon, eventually in early 2000, Michelle revealed to Devin that she would be, in fact, marrying Brandon. And this was a shock. It was quick. She told Devin, basically, I'm getting married in two months' time. So Devin was completely heartbroken by this information. Did that mean she was cutting off relationship, too? Mm, We'll see. Good question, though. The news of the impending wedding, though, it really, it triggered Devin. And she began exhibiting very dysfunctional behavior. Now, I had already said that they had dysfunctional relationship, but now Devin was really committing more acts of stalking and harassment. So there were, like, instances of her driving onto... Michelle and Brandon's driveway, um, engaging in screaming matches with Michelle, honking the horn incessantly as witnessed by neighbors. Eventually, Devin even contacted Michelle's family and disclosed their affair. So essentially outing her as being bisexual to her family, which they did not know. I'm not sure how Michelle uh, handled that situation, but surprisingly, however, Brandon 
still didn't know about the affair. But what he was feeling was his relationship with his fiancée was becoming strained because of what he perceived as this very odd, inexplicable behavior by Devin, which Michelle sort of dismissed. What she said was, yes, Devin was obsessed with her, but it wasn't the other way around. And, you know, obviously news of the, the wedding kind of drove her off the deep end. And so Michelle promised Brandon to sever all contact with Devin even had Devin served with a restraining order one month prior to her wedding. And on February 26, 2000, Michelle and Brandon were married. What's going on meanwhile with Devin? Well, 19-year-old Devin moved back in with Carrie at a hotel in Forks Township, Pennsylvania. Do you know that area? No. It's not that far from areas where James and I had been house hunting for a while out in like near eastern Pennsylvania. Devin and Carrie had decided to recommit to one another, and they began discussing future plans such as relocating to Arizona and possibly adopting a child together. However, despite being a newlywed, within a mere few weeks following her wedding, Michelle started secretly seeing Devin again. The honeymoon phase apparently did not last for Michelle and Brandon. Michelle reportedly remained torn and continued making future plans with Devin, So she would make these plans with Devin, like we're going to get an apartment and we're going to live together. Did Carrie know that Michelle and Devin were? Carrie always knew that they were off and on, but I do think there were times she didn't realize. I think there were times where Devin lied about, you know, no, we're just friends now, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So, you know, when Devin would remind Michelle, like, we can't make these plans because you have a husband. Michelle would reassure Devin by promising her that the union had been just for her parents and I don't even love him. So that's how she was kind of minimizing the life she was going to have or was having with her husband, Brandon. And although Devin and Carrie were still living together, Michelle visited Devin on a regular basis. But the where they usually met was at Devin's father's home. I had seen this. I, I, you know, I read some articles. I watched the forensic files. So this did not make Devin's father very comfortable. Uh, it was like his house was the affair house, mm-hmm. kind of. You know, he knew that they were more than friends. Yes, absolutely. Michelle would also disappear sometimes for entire nights, not returning home until the following morning. So Brandon did eventually become aware of his wife's affair with Devin, and he was enraged when he found out that Michelle was. Not only cheating on him, but lavishing her time and his finances, just so you know, upon Devin. So he was considering divorce. Michelle didn't work. She had a lot of trouble holding down jobs. She would go from job to job. So he was the one who was, you know, taking care of the finances. On the night of June 14th, 2000, Michelle and Devin were meeting at Devin's father's house as per usual, you know, because they both resided with their partners. And they had recently returned from a trip to Puerto Rico together, Michelle and Devin. I don't know how they pulled this off. I'm not mm-hmm. sure what they told their respective partners. But during this trip, they had exchanged $7,000 wedding rings in a supposed wedding ceremony. But Michelle's already married to yeah. Brandon, so I'm not sure how official this wedding ceremony would be. While they were in Puerto Rico, Michelle had purchased three rings, identical bands for herself and Devin, and an additional ring with diamonds for Devin, right? (laughs) These wedding rings and the entirety of the trip had been purchased all on Brandon's credit card. Oh, boy. Without his knowledge. As again, I said, Michelle did not have her own means. The pair apparently, you know, told Devin's father they were so happy they got married. They were making plans to move in together. They were going to live as a married couple. However, after arriving back to the U.S., Devin didn't move out of Carrie's house immediately, as she promised, and this angered Michelle very much, despite the fact that Michelle was still living with her husband. And so 
the argument, they had this argument which escalated on the night of June 14th. And even though they had this fight at Devin's father's house, Mr. Guzman's house, the two eventually both left his residence separately. They got in their cars and they went back to their respective residences. So this means, just because just, just I know it's a little complicated, Michelle went back home to Brandon and Devin went back home to Carrie. And when Devin got back home to Carrie, she basically confessed everything. She confessed that they, they went on this trip together, that they exchanged vows in a marriage ceremony, but she apologized to Carrie and insisted that she was dissolving the relationship with Michelle. She was returning the rings and she was not going to have anything to do with Michelle anymore. It was just going to be her and Carrie. Says who? Devin's telling Carrie this. I know, but who said that Devin told, like, does Devin? Carrie. Carrie. Carrie okay, yes. thank you. But Carrie also reported, you can watch this too if you're interested. Yeah. There's a Forensic Files and there's um, another show, Grave Secrets. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll just list that in the source at the end. But Devin had been drinking during this fight that they had too, or when she was revealing this information, which escalated into a fight. Carrie became very upset realizing the, the level of this betrayal. And the two women's emotionally fueled state escalated into a serious argument and they had a physical altercation which was normal for them as Carrie described and also as Devin's father described so they hit each other they pulled hair they threw items at one another Carrie said Devin once threw a vodka bottle at me but the violence on this incident was interrupted by frequent messages to Devin's pager from Michelle's house. <laughs> pagers. That's so funny. One, so, four, three. You remember that? So James said, do people still know what pagers are? Probably not. Did, not, I mean, I'm sure some of our listeners do, but some of our listeners are probably... So how would you describe a pager then? It's a beeper. Yeah. How would you describe a beeper? <laughs> it was just, you just called the number, right? You called, you you would call someone's beeper and just leave a, and your leave number. Leave your number. So they, yeah. And then they would go to a payphone and call you back. Or yeah. you could just leave a message like boobs or one, four, three. Did one, you ever do that? Threes, I love Six, zero. Isn't I, one, oh, no. four, three, I love you. Yeah, but what was it? Boobs, did you ever do that? Eight, zero, zero, eight. I never like... did that. I didn't have a pager. Really? No, I know. Anyway, so yeah, I did think that was interesting. Pager was there, but Devin's getting her beepers, her pagers going off like crazy. And so Devin called Michelle's phone in response to these multiple messages. And who picks up? Brandon. Brandon. Yes. Yes. Carrie later reported that she could hear Michelle screaming in the background during Devin's phone call. I don't know if she was screaming at Brandon. I assume she was screaming at Devin. But after Devin's conversation with Brandon ended, she explained that Michelle was very sick and that Brandon needed Devin's help taking care of Michelle. That sounds weird. I mean, it sounds odd, right? They've just broken up. He doesn't want her around. But all of a sudden now he's turning to the person who he, you know, yeah. dislikes the most. So Carrie said, OK, I'm, I'm insisting on going with you to their home. But when they got there, Michelle Freaked out. She wouldn't let Carrie into the house. And so Devin drove Carrie back to their house, dropping her off around 11.30 p.m. and telling her that she would be back shortly. This situation is so bizarre. So bizarre. These are these, like, these stories are the things that you make you say, like, real life is stranger than fiction, yeah. right? Okay. So more than an hour later at 12.45 a.m., Carrie received a phone call from Michelle. What Michelle and Brandon said she left their house? They said Devin never made it back to her house. Oh, okay. Michelle and Brandon then drove to Carrie's house together, arriving around 2.30 a.m., and encouraged her to call the police because Devin was missing. Actually, Carrie hesitated because she's like, Devin leaves. She comes back. Like, she yeah. left. She's mad at you. She's mad at me. She'll come back. So instead, Michelle actually called the Forks Township Police Department and reported Devin missing. I'm not sure how long after that, but it was pretty, pretty soon. And after providing authorities with a description of Devin, she contacted friends and relatives in an attempt to locate Devin. 
Would she or should she have done that first before calling the police? I don't know. Some might say yes. Additionally, Michelle continued contacting police numerous times through the night to check on whether or not they had found Devin yet. Hmm. So she seems really concerned. Carrie seems less concerned. Michelle went home. Eventually, Michelle and Brandon went home, maybe caught a couple hours sleep. I'm not sure what they did. But Michelle returned to Carrie's later that morning with breakfast and proposed that the women drive around Easton, Pennsylvania, mm. searching for Devin's vehicle because her vehicle was also missing. These two women are enemies, though, right? They're enemies. Okay. Yes, they are. They don't like each other. But, you know, they're both seemingly concerned about the object of their affection. And so Michelle specifically recommended that they investigate Canal Park, an area which she and Devin regularly frequented. And so they did. They drove around and at approximately 1 p.m. that day, Michelle and Carrie found Devin's car in the parking lot of a museum with Devin lying in the back seat. Carrie said that at close glance through the window, she realized that Devin's eyes, maybe her lids and lips were purple. And when she opened the door, she began shaking Devin, who did not wake. She said she was just very confused and hysterical, basically. And she became even more hysterical when she realized that Devin wasn't going to wake up. And so the pair, the two women, contacted the authorities who came pretty quickly and who declared Devin deceased upon arrival. Still couldn't tell at this point, though, just so you know what the cause of death was. Devin was laying in the back seat, and I, she had a coat over her. And I'll talk about that later a little bit more. But so I don't think that Carrie actually saw the nature of the injuries at that time, which is probably a good thing. Now... This was approximately 12 hours following her disappearance, so she was found quickly, and this was only one week after her 19th birthday. And things were starting off suspicious, with the gruesome discovery having been made by none other than her two romantic rivals together. Very strange, right? They just happened to be together and come upon her body. The coroner found Devin in the back seat of her vehicle with her, like I said, her body was covered by a green coat, but when the green coat was removed it revealed a massive wound to her neck. Mm. Investigators described her as nearly decapitated. So I think that's what Carrie didn't mm -hmm. see. Devin's throat had a, quote, massive gaping laceration to her neck. According to court transcripts, the incision was a four-inch long cut that went almost to her spine. Okay. It severed Devin's tongue and cut in half the right carotid artery and the right jugular vein. This is... I mean, these are serious offenses and brutal. This is extremely brutal. What was found also, though, was interesting. So she was found with a knife in her own hand. So Devin had, was holding a knife. There was a syringe containing a clear liquid was found inside Devin's waistband, but there was no cap on the syringe. Was she a drug user? I don't know if she was a drug user. I, I, I know she was a drinker, but it seemed like a staged suicide. Gotcha. Like someone's trying to show she took something, there's some syringe, and then she cut her own throat. Given the uncapped syringe, the placement of the knife, and the lack of, by the way, there was no blood at the scene. So she would have bled out. She would have bled somewhere else. You know, if she slit her own neck, there would be blood everywhere, and the scene didn't have it. So the homicide unit or homicide detectives quickly thought this is an amateur attempt to stage a suicide, but they didn't believe for one second that it was a suicide. They determined very quickly that it was a, in fact, a homicide. <laughs> The cause of death was that stab wound to her neck in concert with asphyxiation. Her pants were also discovered in grass and dirt stains, which suggested to investigators that she had, well, what does that suggest? That she was dragged from somewhere? Correct. That she was dragged, that, that was another indication that she was dragged into the vehicle to, you know, 
stage a fictitious crime scene after having been killed at another location. So they knew they had to figure out, you know, who's the suspects, what location was she killed. It's one of two people. Actually, one of three people. One of three people. So in fact, it would be more than a love triangle. I see it as it was either Carrie or Michelle and Brandon. So I see two different parties. Okay. Three people. But go ahead, continue. Are you leaning one way or another yet? Uh, Yes. All right. So the postmortem toxicology results revealed no presence of substances in her system. And no blood was detected on the knife that she was holding. (laughs) nor anywhere else at the crime scene. And also further, just to further this, expert analysis of her stab wound ruled that the knife in her hand was not consistent with the murder weapon. Mm. So in essence, this was definitely a murder. And the question became, who killed Devin Mm. and why? Carrie quickly became the primary suspect. She had been the one to call the authorities to the crime scene. They asked, did anything happen? She admitted to a serious physical altercation with Devin Mm -hmm. just a few hours prior to her disappearance due to her jealousy over another partner. So they've got a good motive here. There was also very well-known volatility within Devin and Carrie's relationship. Uh, Devin's father, for example, called Carrie very abusive and admitted to immediately presuming she was responsible for his daughter's homicide. When the police searched Carrie and Devin's home, too, they found trace amounts of Devin's blood in the shower stall. And they also found one of the car mats in there. Mm. I recall that. And and they thought there was blood on it. So they were like, she probably killed her either in, you know, here. Mm -hmm. Something got on the car mat. She's cleaning that. You know, the assumption was this does not look good for Carrie. Carrie was brought into the police station and given a polygraph test. Despite its inadmissibility in court, we know that polygraphs are not allowed to be used in court, but it does help police narrow down suspects in an investigation. The results were inconclusive, so they didn't exclude her, they didn't indicate her, so she remained, I would say, a pretty important suspect. But at the same time, Detective Barry Golazeski, who was assigned to investigate Devin's case, quickly began to suspect Brandon Bloss and Michelle Hetzel as well. Mm -hmm. Independent witnesses had spotted Devin, as it turns out, in a screaming argument with both Brandon and Michelle outside the couple's residence at approximately 1230 the night before. So remember, that indicates that she did make it back there. Mm -hmm. And this is the last time that she was seen alive. So that doesn't look very good for Brandon and for Michelle. So the detectives interrogated the married couple as well. Obviously, it goes without saying they they said that Devin, you know, they had had somewhat of a fight, but Devin had left and she never Mm -hmm. came back. The investigation also revealed a tip, though, provided by a young man named George, who was friends with, get this, Devin, Carrie, and Michelle, Hmm. and who had spent an evening hanging out with all three of them. So even though Carrie and Michelle hated each other, they did sometimes spend time together when Devin wanted them to. Very dysfunctional relationship. But what George had to say was pretty shocking. George told the police that after Devin and Carrie left that night, Michelle remained behind to ask him, she wanted to have a private time, if he was willing to kill Devin for money, sex, or both. <laughs> right? Yes. I'm telling you, it's stranger than fiction. The day after the murder, police were able to get a search warrant of Michelle and Brandon's home. So Carrie had let them in, by the way. They didn't have a search warrant, but they got a search warrant for uh, Michelle and Brandon's. And they discovered a couple of things. First, they found a pair of Michelle's jeans soaking in the washing machine <laughs> at the couple's house. Um, The washing machine had no other articles in it. Uh, The bathtub was also brimming with soapy water. And the water reflected a positive result for blood Mm -hmm. during presumptive testing. I believe that it was too diluted, though, to take the testing further. But 
Guess what they found in the pocket of Michelle's jeans? A syringe. The cap. Oh. Like literally the cap to the syringe. So they shot right to the top of the suspect list now, but police still didn't have what they felt was enough. So over the next six weeks, after their interviews with the police, the focus really switched to them. Meanwhile, maintain their innocence. They even took a vacation to Mexico at one point. They were under surveillance, but they weren't detained from leaving. Michelle also reportedly announced to family and friends that she was pregnant with twins, which was not true. It's unclear whether Brandon knew his wife was falsifying a pregnancy, but police also were very smart. They conducted searches of Michelle and Brandon's discarded garbage bags, which we know trash is fair game for police officers. Okay. And they discovered numerous bandages, one of which seemed to have an outline of a bite mark. Hmm. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So the authorities sought a warrant to photograph Brandon. The images showed an injury resembling a bite mark on Brandon's left forearm. And so they thought they hit pay dirt here. Mm. Detective Golazeski said that he had conducted several trash pulls beginning probably one week post-homicide that went on for about a month. And he said also that it wasn't just one bandage, that there were multiple bandages. What a shitty job to have to go through someone's trash. Oh. Do you think they make an intern do that? No, I think they actually do it. And I always think that too. God, I mean, the things that you... Oh. At this point, though, Devin had already been buried, but her body was exhumed so that dental imprints could be produced because they never saw that coming. Mm-hmm. And a forensic odontologist determined that Brandon's injury was inflicted by a human bite mark consistent with Devin's dental records. Junk science. Right, it yeah. is, Yeah. <laughs> And, and this evidence was not sufficient for an arrest because it didn't even prove that Brandon killed her. It just proved that Devin or someone bit Brandon. Mm-hmm. Like he had a bite mark, yeah. right? But more evidence was being tested from the crime scene. And because of Michelle probably did not realize she made another critical mistake. These two were obviously amateurs. But when Michelle drove to find Devin, she drove so close, like her car, she got so close to Devin's car that they impounded it as part of the crime scene. <laughs> so they now had her car in custody. <laughs> and when they, you know, basically realized that, like, we have her car and we can search it. Why don't we go see what's going on in, inside her car? <laughs> and inside the trunk, the police recovered two pairs of rubber gloves, Brandon's T-shirt and a pair of his jeans, all containing blood, which DNA testing revealed was Devin. Okay. Well, that's enough to arrest them, no? Yes. Additionally, Brandon's sweatshirt, socks, and sneakers were seized, all of which had indications of human blood. Those samples proved too weak for further testing, though. Furthermore, when examining the green jacket that was draped over Devin's you know, body, investigators discovered the presence of hairs, which were consistent with Michelle's hair. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean it has to be hers. But all this evidence was, you know, mounting, and it was enough. On August 12th of 2000, less than one month after becoming suspects, both Michelle and Brandon were charged with two counts of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in relation to Devin's death. Carrie was fully exonerated from all suspicion. It turned out on that car mat that was found in her shower, it was food stains. Mm. And trace amounts of blood were easily explained by... That could be anything. Menstrual cycle, cut razor, you know, shaving. Right. So, you know, basically also with the phone logs and DNA, they knew that Carrie was absolutely not. They were... They exonerated her. All right. So what do you think happens? Are these two going to plead guilty or are they going to go to... they're going to... They're going to keep denying it. Okay. So they're going to trial. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They would be right. Uh, This is great. Upon being charged with Devin's murder, though... Guess what they did? Well, Brandon and Michelle nearly immediately turned on I each other. I was just going to ask you, if, why didn't either of them take a plea and throw the other one to, under the bus? Oh, they. Tur- I don't know if they were offered pleas because gotcha. I think there was evidence against both of them oh, that okay. was pretty strong. 
but they were trying to save their own hides. So, of course, you know, they pointed the fingers at each other. They both insisted they were innocent and that the other was responsible. By the way, a stance that never changed. And despite efforts by the defense attorneys to hold separate trials for the estranged yet married co-defendants, a joint trial commenced. That's good. In October 2001. So, yes, it was... Uh, We've talked about this before, right? The advantages or disadvantages. Did they take the stand? No, they didn't take the stand. Okay, witnesses for the prosecution included, let's see, Kara Judd, a woman who had dated one of Brandon's sisters, testifying that Michelle admitted to having killed Devin, explaining that she had been incensed when Devin brought Carrie to her home on the night that they argued. Um, So this witness said that when Devin returned alone, Devin and Michelle both began fighting inside Michelle's house and in an attempt at self-defense, Devin bit Brandon's arm, you know, attempting mm-hmm. to protect his wife. And there was extensive bruising and small cuts across Devin's arms, indicating that she was likely grabbed from behind by Brandon. Or it could have been Michelle that grabbed her. And so they explain this as, you know, some type of restraint prior to the couple, like, violently and fatally stabbing her. I'm sorry if you said this, but Michelle and Devin were on bad terms at this point? Yes. Okay. That was after they got in the fight when they came back and oh, they hadn't okay. moved out. They were on yep. very bad terms. Okay. But even in the description that this witness is giving, she's not saying who stabbed Devin. With respect to the actual stabbing, the perpetrator was unable, like which one of them actually did it, was unable to be definitively identified. Um, there was such disparity in their accounts yeah. and they just didn't have the evidence to say which one of them did the so stabbing. I'm dying to know what happened then. I know this is getting good, okay. But this witness, Kara, further testified to Michelle having discussed soaking her jeans in the water and disclosing that Brandon hosed down the garage where the murder had taken place. I don't know if that's correct. I actually think the murder took place in the backyard. I think the police found, because they couldn't find anything in their house and they thought that was so odd. Yeah. Uh, it looked like they moved out into the backyard and they luminol the backyard and found blood back there. George Vine, the witness who testified that Michelle had offered him sex or money to kill Devin, also testified for the prosecution. Not only had Michelle made that proposition to him one week prior to the murder, she had also tried two or three months prior to the murder. So she's going back and forth with, I love you and I want to kill you, okay? But this is also significant because it establishes premeditation. You know, so the the crime of passion defense becomes less likely and more likely that this was a cumulative resentment and there was premeditation here. Also, the manner in which the married couple lured Devin to their home alone, initially with those chronic pages, Brandon's insistent that his wife was ill. It supports premeditation of probably a blitz attack, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so things are not looking good. The phone records from Brandon and Michelle show that they made these calls, but all of those calls were deleted off of Devin's pager, hmm. which doesn't matter because they have the cell phone. Brandon really didn't submit any much, like any evidence of like on behalf of his defense, he didn't have really much to, uh, to go on. Yeah. Michelle had multiple witnesses, including her mother, that testified as character witnesses or said that Brandon confessed. But then there was witnesses that said Michelle was the one who confessed. Sorry, you had asked me if they testified, Amy, and Michelle did take the stand. Okay. She just swore that she wasn't involved with Devin's murder. So Brandon didn't, but she did? Yes. That's interesting. Yep. She said she wasn't involved in Devin's murder, and she, she said she just placed full blame on her husband and said that he was the one. However, the prosecution's theory was that both defendants were incensed with Devin, right? Brandon's jealous of his wife's affair, and Michelle's jealous of Devin's relationship with Carrie. And it seemed like it escalated to the point where 
both couple shared this. Remember those self-concocted fantasies that Michelle had? It seemed like the two of them had this like shared belief that once Devin was gone, life would be like they could live happily ever after. She's the problem. You've heard this before, right? You've heard of one of the most famous cases was the Diane Zamora case. Do you remember that? I don't know it. That was, they were two young Texas cadets, a couple, and they were like 17 and, you know, their plans were to get married and whatnot. And the David was her boyfriend and he had had a one-time sexual uh, relationship with um, another female in their school. And so Diane's idea was the only way that they could get past this was to kill her. And so they concocted a plan. It was obviously... Actually, they got caught by their own words. Their plan was not terrible, but it's just that they both talked. Regardless, I always think back to the Diane Zamora case. The pact was that if they get rid of the common enemy, everything's going to be okay. It's a false belief, obviously. All right. The extensive physical evidence showed that it supported the prosecution's theory that Devin returned to the home, to, you know, the defendant's home. The confrontation among the trio ensued, and Devin was ultimately brutally murdered. And that's why they wouldn't let Carrie in, because it was planned. That's exactly what I would mm-hmm. think. That's, that's exactly correct. The defendants during the trial, they both tried to maintain this like mutual exclusivity. Like, in order to believe one of them committed the crime, it was necessary to believe that the other was not involved. But, I mean, the prosecution's theory was way more likely, and it seemed very obvious that both were involved. The prosecution, however, posited that Michelle was the actual ringleader behind the crime. And she had coerced her submissive husband to help Lauren kill Devin at her behest. (laughs) Arguably, her repeat efforts to solicit another man to kill Devin without Brandon's knowledge or involvement strengthened this argument, though. Mm -hmm. She was the one who was soliciting. Ultimately, Amy, what do you think is the outcome here? Guilty, guilty. Thank you. Ultimately, Michelle and Brandon were both found, I guess they were found not guilty on the conspiracy to commit murder, but they were both found guilty of first degree murder of Devin Guzman. Michelle and Brandon were both sentenced to life without parole and have exhausted their appeals. You covered this, but it seems like they were never able to establish who actually killed Devin. They were never able to establish who did it. Just that they did it together and that it had to be those two. The blood, all the evidence indicated that they did it together. But who was the one who slit the throat? It doesn't even matter at this point. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't seem fair, though. How could you charge both people with first degree murder if you can't establish who actually killed? They both had, you know, possibly equal involvement. I mean, that's not uncommon. We said that happened in cases. I Um, know. It happens all the time. But I mean, justice was served for the victim. She died in a horrific way. Well, that's a a question we're going to answer later. But theory. Okay. So why did this happen? Um, I mean, this is there's a, this is a very complicated scenario and there's very complicated relationships, but it seemed that maybe for Michelle's behavior, we might look to your favorite theory and that would be theory. Loss given. of a positive stimuli. Yeah. And Michelle did not know how to deal with negative stressors. Um, she did not have appropriate coping skills. She had a history of familial conflict, dysfunction, chronic marital and interpersonal conflict, consistent financial insecurity. Sounds like a personality disorder too. Yes, I think she definitely shows disordered personality traits, extreme narcissism, almost histrionic behavior, uh, unstable personal relationships, a parasitic lifestyle. I think she's got several different issues going on. I also think, Amy, that it's possible that low Mm self-control is at play here. Michelle was reared by several different foster parents, though in contact with her biological parents, but she shows many of the signs of a person with low self-control. And according to Godfordson and Hershey, 
that's usually, I don't know if I agree with them, but that's usually instilled control or your level of control is usually instilled by parental guardians at a young age. But Michelle was certainly impulsive, self-centered. She had a bad um, temper, a focus on short-term gratification. She has all the the signs of low self-control. Now, given that Michelle was the dominant one within her marriage, Brandon's willingness to commit this homicide can probably be explained or possibly explained by Tittle's control balance theory. So this is where specifically, you know, people commit crimes when they don't have enough Mm -hmm. control in their life. Like they have too much or they have too little. So she had the control surplus, way too much. Mm -hmm. And he probably felt a control deficit And so her actions were the exploitative one. Because when you have a surplus, you Mm -hmm. commit crimes of exploitation. Whereas his were like submissive, but also ultimately very predatory, an attempt to gain back that control. Mm -hmm. I think that explains both of their behaviors. I don't think that Brandon would have ever committed a crime had he not come in. I can't say definitively, but I don't think he would have committed a murder and probably would not have head down any road of crime had he not got involved with Michelle Hetzel. We see that a lot with co-defendant cases. Yeah, we absolutely do. There's so, always one person who's the driver and then the other person who's a little more submissive. Right. The question that we wanted to ask now, I think, were there any other theories? I think I probably, we probably explained it, but anything else come to mind? The only other thing I was thinking is neutralization. Okay. Um, depending on who actually killed her or who, you know, who was the ringleader. Okay. But... Um, They're denying like that they did anything wrong, denying responsibility. Yeah, because she deserved it. So denial of the victim also? A little bit of both. A little so denial neutralizing of victim. their guilt. Neutralizing their guilt because, you know, Devin's the one who did something wrong. She's, yes. you know, something like that. Yes, I would have to agree like, with that. For Brandon, he could say, well, Devin's the one who destroyed my marriage and she's the one who, you know, mm-hmm. so it's like she kind of got what was coming for her. Okay. Did the criminal justice system get it right? So they... Proved. I think overwhelmingly the trial was fair and they proved their guilt. Life without the possibility of parole is the harshest possible sentence, excluding capital punishment. To some, life might have seemed excessive given Michelle's age. She was 19. She just missed that 18-year-old cutoff, you know, for the Supreme Court decision Mm -hmm. that says juveniles can't be sentenced to life without parole, without the opportunity for parole. How old was Brandon? Brandon was 26, so he was outside that. But she was 19. Do you know which case established that juveniles have to at least be given the right to apply for parole? Uh, 2012, Miller v. Alabama. So smart, Amy. I have to say this. I understand this this argument, you know, in terms of youth. I think that it's an appropriate sentence for her still. She, as you said, exhibits, I think, serious disordered personality traits. I think that... She has poor boundaries, narcissism, deception, no coping skills. I don't think this is, I think she would repeat, I would think she would offend again for sure. I would be okay with possibility of parole after 25 if she showed very clear signs of remorse and rehabilitation. That's interesting because some might argue for the opportunity for parole. And I would need, I said, I would need for Michelle and Brandon to take individual responsibility, yes. stop blaming each well, other. Well, I'd want to know exactly the who truth. did what. Who did what. That's, I absolutely, no one, I don't think anyone deserves to get any sort of parole until a victim's family can have closure and know exactly what happened. Yeah, we always say that mm-hmm. truth. And, yep. and a lot of families really do just want that. Yeah. So I would not favor parole for either of them in any situation in which they didn't yep. tell the truth. I agree. And to know that they were actually remorseful. Mm-hmm. I don't think Michelle Hetzel's remorseful. Mm-hmm. I believe he's more redeemable. I actually believe I that. Too. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. Regardless, neither defendant has admitted their guilt to date, but I hope that they do in the future. Yeah. I think that would be 
probably, you know, there's never really closure, but I think that would at least give more justice to Devin's family. I would also hope that if one of them truly did it, you know, the other one clearly was an accomplice in some way, but if one of them truly was the one who planned it and actually did it by their own hands, Mm -hmm. I would hope that they at some point will step up and take the guilt so maybe the other person can have a reduced sentence. I don't see that happening if Michelle is the primary perpetrator. Correct, okay. Well, thanks for joining us today for that case. I know it got a little complicated. I hope you're able to keep the name straight. Anyway, uh, thank you everyone for listening to this case today. We love the interest listeners take in our topics we cover. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include Commonwealth v. Hetzel, 2003, on case law, Commonwealth v. Hetzel, on Justia Law, an episode of Forensic Files, Hetzel v. Lamas, 2009, Hetzel v. Lamas, 2010, an episode of Scorned Love Kills, and Medium.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.